Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. I am your host, Christopher Hurtado. I'm joined this evening not by my regular co-host, Ben Peterson, but by my guest co-host and good friend, Travis Patton. It's good to have you with me, Travis. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Travis and I go way back. We're good friends. Travis, like Ben and I, is not a biblical scholar. He did not teach seminary like Ben, but he did teach gospel doctrine or Sunday school for eight years, right, Travis? Yeah, it was eight or nine. It was a a record, I think. I often turn to Travis with my questions about the scriptures. And he did also train to teach for CES. And and there's a funny review that Travis got a review from a student who thought, who wrote, Brother Patton tries really hard to be happy. (laughs) Do you want to tell me about that, Travis? Yeah, uh, I've got different reviews in my life on different things. That one is my favorite for sure. You know, the problem was I was guest teaching it. The teacher was basically a cheerleader. You know, I mean, it just, I was doomed to failure. The kids were not going to like me after that. Oh, well. Yeah. All for the best. Well, it's good to have you with me again, Travis. So we're, tonight we're covering Exodus chapters 1 through 6. We're going into a new book here. So we're going to start off by giving an overview of Exodus. And then we'll go into a little bit some of the themes of Exodus as a brief overview. Of course, when we go through the text, we'll bring those out more. And maybe not just Exodus, but the rest of the Pentateuch or Hexateuch, if you will, to complete out the story and show the relationship between. Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch or Hexateuch. And then we'll go through an overview of this week's reading, which is just one through six, chapters one through six. And then we'll actually go through the text and again bring out more of these things that we're just overviewing here in the beginning. So let's just start with an overview, Travis, of Exodus. You know, it's important to note that the first word of the book of Exodus is and. All right. Now that's very purposeful, but it brings us into the whole story of Genesis too. I mean, this is a continuation of, uh, you know, if we look in, if we look at the last verses of Genesis, you know, we're, we're in 50, Genesis 50, uh, you know, looking at verse 22, Joseph dwelled in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of sons from Ephraim, and the sons as well of Machish, son of Manasseh, uh, Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knee. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, and God will surely single you out and take you up from this land to the land he promised to Isaac and Jacob. I mean, that's that's basically the end of Genesis, giving this promise, reminding his family of this promise. And so when Exodus starts with and, that's where we're picking up from, right? Dun, dun, dun. This is how it all happens. Now, Travis, when you say the first word is and, is that in my translation? Well, it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know which one you're looking at, but yeah, I mean, typically it says, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. You know, okay, and that's actually one of the names of the book, right? You know, Shemot, you know, one of the Hebrew names for the book of Exodus, right? Exodus comes from you know the the classical tradition, the Greek and Latin translations. 
whereas uh you know shemot is one of the hebrew names for it. these are, which is the names right these are the names you know it's, hebrew would take the names of the books from the uh from the first words of, of each book so anyhow that's what we're looking at here so we have genesis and then we have exodus now exodus is going to have three parts we're going to look at the part where they're in in slavery in bondage in egypt right all the Israelites, all the descendants of Israel are, are in slavery. And then uh, Moses comes along. Moses hears God's call, takes them out of Egypt. And then they have the wandering in the desert. The first part of that is making it to Sinai, where God reveals the law to them. And then the third part of Exodus is, you know, instructions for the tabernacle. I mean, 16 of the 40 chapters, that's 40% of the book of Exodus, focuses on the tabernacle, which is really significant. But that's all, all of the book of Exodus takes about two years time. It covers about two years. And then we know they wandered in the desert for 40 years. So the rest of the 38 years take place in, in the rest of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the, the last three books of the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch being these five books of Moses. And Joshua is when they actually make it into the promised land. You know, this is the conquest of Canaan. And so forth. So Joshua is kind of the final chapter. You know, if you lump Joshua in, then you've got the Hexateuch, right? The six books, uh, which are kind of this single story. Now, you know, a lot of times we say that Moses, you know, these are the five books of Moses. Traditionally, Moses wrote them. No scholars today, you know, at least most mainstream scholars aren't going to argue that Moses actually wrote these. You know, the traditional interpretation, not, not necessarily traditional, but the mainstream interpretation is that you know, we have a number of different traditions that are woven together, you know, to give us this material, to give us these books. And, uh, you know, that's the documentary hypothesis, which is, you know, pretty well established. It's kind of just the, the starting point for understanding these. And, and that's going to be important, too, as we go along. You know, Christopher, you've, you've talked about how important it is, you know, in our discussions, how important it is for you to understand that, that there are different traditions and their contradictions and so forth, right? Yeah, as I read, you know, if I see a contradiction rather than what looks like a contradiction, rather than thinking I've gone wrong in my reading, which is still possible, I'll, I have to read carefully and maybe reread, but it may be that there is a contradiction because there are two different versions of a story being told. Ben and I have brought out places where, where that's happened and where the church curriculum has divided the two versions of the same story in dividing up the curriculum by, you know, by separating those out by one week so that it's even harder to tell if you're actually just reading along and following the, following the curriculum. But another disconnect that exists for me, Travis, which is really just something we talked about pre-show that you were surprised by, is that I didn't see somehow Exodus was separate from Genesis for me. These names, by the way, that, that doesn't tell me what I need to know. It's not until we get, and Joseph was still in Egypt, that I realized, oh, wait a minute. Right, this is a continuation of where we left off in Genesis. Somehow in my Lutheran upbringing, converting to Latter-day Saintism, going through the Old Testament every few years, not really understanding it, I never made that connection. It's been such a pleasure and, and such a benefit to me to go through this text as a teacher. You know, this has been one of my secrets to, to learning for many years, is to, to prepare to, to learn in a way that I'm preparing to teach. And so that's something for, for the listener to consider, this idea that as we learn to teach, we learn better. Yeah. And so I feel like I'm getting to know the text better here. Yeah, no, that is, that's a very true thing. So we've given kind of an overview of, you know, of, of the general story. 
you know, another significant name for the five books of Moses is Torah, which is the law or law, right? Or the, or the teaching is another way of, of putting that. And that's so significant because when we talk about the law of Moses being the foundation of Israelite religion, I mean, it comes from the five books of Moses. It comes from this story. It starts with, you know, Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. You know, this is in Exodus. And then, you know, in Leviticus in particular, in particular, we get this expansion of the, of the holiness code and everything that goes into this. And we really get the foundation for Israelite and then Jewish religion, you know, after that. So it's, it's really significant. I mean, it's, a, and it's amazing how the instances, how the events in Exodus that we're going to cover and that, you know, that, that, that we'll be covering as a church, you know, in the next few weeks, how significant they are. The Passover, you know, these sort of things. I mean, these, these transform the whole religious calendar, right? We have Passover. I mean, this goes into Easter, right? I mean, Easter, Easter fluctuates every year, right? I mean, the, the Sunday it falls on is not the same day every year like, like every other holiday we have because it's tied to Passover, right? So Easter is, is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox, right? Because that's how, you know, Passover is calculated. Passover was originally an agricultural festival. Once the exodus happens, it's reinterpreted as part of God's plan. It's a commemoration of everything that happened to Israelites. And so this is really the foundation story for the Israelite nation that this is still a living tradition today. I mean, it's astonishing. I mean, it's really amazing what we've got here. And a lot of that, uh, that liturgical calendar, we as Latter-day Saints don't follow, right? Easter, yes. The rest of it, not so. We have, our fellow Christians are in Lent now. We're not observing Lent. That's not part of our experience as Latter-day Saint Christians. The, the gold plates right, were given to Joseph Smith, right? He was supposed to meet the angel there on a certain day every year, right? On the fourth year, that coincided with a Jewish festival in which Jews all around the world were celebrating the giving of a new covenant, which would gather Israel in, in preparation for the Messiah. And, and then when the angel Moroni tells Joseph Smith what this place will do, it's a description of the festival. I mean, the, these festivals are not only tied into uh, Judaism, but as a prefiguration of the last days, they're tied into our beliefs, too. I mean, it's really astonishing in that way. What's a good resource for learning more about those, Travis? So I think, uh, Lin is it Lynette Reed, R-E-A-D-E, -E, I think. Um, she's published a book on this, a number of articles that I think ended up in the, you know, one of them at least was in the Enzyme. Uh, you know, we can, I can get the references when we put them in the show notes here, if you want. We haven't had show notes so far, but we might, we might uh, consider that. So before we go into an overview of this week's reading, what we're covering in this podcast, chapters one through six, would you like to bring out some of the themes, just to mention some of the themes that, we're, that we might find as we go through this, or do we just bring those out as we go through the text? What do you think? Yeah, I think there's things that we should look for as we go through because they're themes that end up being extremely significant in later thought that pop up in places as distinct as Dante's Divine Comedy, where the first Canto of Inferno is, uh, you know, based on the Exodus, and the second Canto of Purgatory. I mean, you know, as the angels, the angels bringing the saved souls across the water, and they're singing Psalm 114, which is, uh, you know, as Israel exited Egypt. Right. I mean, it's clearly Exodus themed. So you've got Exodus all through Dante. You have Exodus in Huckleberry Finn. 
I mean, it's it's just astonishing. Well, I keep saying astonishing. I got to come up with a new adjective here. Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, I mean, this that is know, interesting. He he saves a slave by getting on the you know cr- getting on the river, you know, and going down the river, and uh, this is made explicit when they have this schoolroom lesson about uh, Moses and the bull rushers that they talk about. So, I mean, it's it's a uh, it's interesting. It's it's one of the pervasive things. Northrop Frye, you know, the great uh, critic says, the only thing that happens in the Bible is the Exodus. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and when you start seeing the theme, the, ex- the theme of Exodus, and this is actually a personal thing too. And I think this is one of the most useful ways to read this. You know, we're supposed to apply the scriptures to ourselves, right? And when you see that, uh, and this is the way the Christians, in fact, Dante tells you to read it this way. He says, you know, it's a turning away of the soul from sin. And so as the, you know, Israelites leave Egypt, you know, how hard it is for them to actually do this. They've decided to make this change, to make this huge transformation in their life, to become people who serve God, and then how difficult it is for them to do that. You know, they have external obstacles that come up. Even once they've conquered these external obstacles, they're stuck with the internal ones, and they have to go back. And as we read these and we see how these can apply to the situations that we have, you know, it's it's really quite interesting. I mean, l- later Hasidic and Kabbalistic mysticism looked at uh, things like the parting of the sea. And they talk about how when Moses parted the sea, you know, they didn't just part that water. They parted every water in the cosmos and they parted the water that's in the heart and soul of every human being, which is the deep unconscious hidden things in your soul. So after God parted the Red Sea, it now opens us up to be able to penetrate the depths of our own soul with God's grace and be able to confront the demons and the hard, scary, dark things that we have hidden there and be able to get dry land, you know, reality in in a concrete footing, even in the depths of our own soul. Uh, You know, there's a lot of ways to look at this sort of material. You know, when you say it's the the only thing happening in the Bible, as Northrop Fry said, I'm reminded that it is also the central theme in the New Testament. It is also the central theme in the Quran. The Exodus is the central theme of all three of these books of Scripture. There's another, another thing that came to my mind when you mentioned Dante, and that's the ascension, right? The idea of ascension, the ascension to Sinai. When I think of Dante, I think of, of the ascent of the soul. By the way, on our sister podcast, Latter-day Contemplation, we had Travis on. We talked about Dante, right, Travis? We talked about Dante once or twice, at least once. Yeah, and we we had John for a, a discussion of classical contemplation, and you have an article on Dante. I want to I want to mention that that you published. What's the title of that article? It's it's available in PDF if you Google it. Yeah, let's see. Do you remember it's, the title of your article? Gosh, let's see. We got, you asked me this yesterday. It's on deification and Dante, and and it, whenever I'm looking for it, I just Google deification and Dante, and it comes up. Travis Patton's article is the purification of love, heavenly ascent. From Plato to Dante, from Digital Commons at USU. So, what about the ascension to Sinai and the ascension in the Commedia? And this is another theme, right? Yeah, I mean, on on a large scale, right? You you always speak of going down to Egypt, right? I mean, it's 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 sea level. It's down. You know, it, it, you always go down to Egypt, so that's a descent, and then you always go up to Israel, up to Jerusalem, right? The Aliyah, you know, is actually this, you know, tradition, this kind of pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And so that's the large scale theme here, right? We go, we have to descend and then we have to come back out. We have to fight. We have to become purified. 
And we have to, you know, really struggle until we see God, till we make it into the promised land to become true servants of him and one with him. There's also a smaller, you know, more precise ascent that happens when Moses ascends Sinai. And again, interestingly, in late antiquity, when you have, you know, the Neoplatonizing early uh, Christian mystics and so forth, like Gregory of Nyssa, and in particular, well, in particular, and also Pseudo Dionysius, you know, these are these are early Christian mystics. The two main texts that they formed as the basis of, of early Christian mysticism was Plato's cave and Moses' ascent to Sinai. And, you know, you have this tripartite ascension of Sinai where, you know, all of Israel gathers at the bottom, you know, the elders can go partway up, and then, you know, only Moses can go up and actually commune with God. And that for them, that mirrors the three-part ascent to heaven, the three-part mystical journey, where you have to have uh, purification, enlightenment, and then union with God. And it's, uh, I mean, it's spelled out, you know, really clearly in the, in the, in Dionysius's mystical theology. I mean, it's just one paragraph, but it lays out really clearly. And then, uh, you know, Gregory of Nyssa does a whole, you know, life of Moses where, where he interprets all of this and lays out a really rich theme here. And I think it's interesting and, it, and it's important to be able to realize how many ways these scriptures can be looked at. I think as Americans and as Latter-day Saints, we often want the right answer. Right. We want the official answer. We want to know the truth about something. What is what is the official position? This sort of thing. But that's not how the how the Jews read the scriptures, right? I mean, if you look at, you know, if you look at a copy of the Talmud, you have, you know, the, the verse, and then you have a commentary, and then you have a commentary. So when you're when they're studying, they say, Okay, well, let's look at this verse. Now so and so says this thing about it, and another so and so says this thing about it. And another you know, and so you learn these different ways to look at it. And it makes you think more clearly and have to use your own brain. And it also, you know, lets you see that these things are supposed to become rich parts of your life, right? It's not about gaining a piece of knowledge. It's about getting a rich texture of themes that you can use to help interpret things in your own life, to help give your life a framework, a structure, a way of dealing with the things that come up in life. I mean, this is what we do in the temple, right? We go in and we put ourselves into a pattern. We, we take place in this drama and we learn to see our lives as an exile and then an, an exodus and then a journey towards something, right? And there's an ascent there too. And there's the ascent there too. So we learn to see these sort of things so we can give our lives structure and order and, and meaning. Yeah, for the listener's sake, the if you're not familiar with Plato's cave, what Travis is calling Plato's cave, that would be the allegory of the cave in Plato's Republic, book seven, lines 514a through 520a. And that's worthwhile looking at too, especially in connection with this week's reading. That could, that could be interesting if you haven't gone through that. A couple of other themes that I see, Travis, that are central to the story of the Bible, you know, one is God hears the call of the oppressed. That's what's going on here. As I, I think of the story of the Israelites in Egypt as the beginning of the story that, that we think of as, as the Bible, the Old Testament in particular. I know that in, you know, 50 chapters ago at the beginning of Genesis, we started in the beginning, but I see this, you know, as, as inspired by Rob Bell in one of his books. It was either Jesus Wants to Save Christians, an excellent book I've read many times, or What is the Bible? Bell points out, you know, that 
the story really starts here. You can imagine, as he says, uh, a little girl asking her father, Daddy, why do you have stripes on your back? And he says, well, you know, they've, they've upped my uh, quota, or the quota remained the same, but I have to get my own straw now and keep up the quota. And this isn't really the answer to his daughter's question, because the question really is, but why? Why, why are we here? Why are we slaves in Egypt? And so to answer that question, then we say, well, in the beginning, and I always kid with my mother-in-law, who's an historian, because anytime I ask her a question, well, what about World War II? You know, well, to understand World War II, you have to understand World War I. To understand World War I, you have to understand, and so on and so forth. And I always joke, okay, so we have to go back to Adam to understand World War II, right? And so that's how it goes. We say in the beginning, and then we go back and we have all these etiological tales that we've got that, you know, Ben and I have gone through over the last 50 episodes and maybe um, some other guest co-hosts here and there to explain how things came to be the way they are. And so that's one theme is that God hears the call of the oppressed. And on the one hand, on the other hand, as Pete Enns points out, it's not like God seems to have a problem with slavery in general. It's that he remembers his covenant with Israel. So there's that theme too, right? That God is remembering his covenant. We also have that he continues to promise the land of Canaan, that since Abraham we've been hearing is going to come to us. And it's funny because Abraham goes down to Egypt. He goes to Canaan and he finds out that he's worse off there than he was back in Ur. And he goes to, he says, I don't want to be here. I'm going to Egypt. And he goes to Egypt. And then in the next story of the next patriarch, God says, don't go to Egypt now, (laughs) go to Canaan. And then we have the next patriarch, I think, living as a stranger in Canaan. And so I'm waiting for Canaan. You know, I'm waiting for this promised land. I feel like I'm with the, I'm with the Israelites waiting for this to happen as I go through this story uh, with them. And so that's another major theme. And then the idea, as, as Rob Bell points out, that, that God seems to be looking to enter into a relationship with us, which is spelled out in the text as a marriage. Right, it really is a marriage or an adoption. Right, so God wants to marry us in some sense. There's this uh, marriage of heaven and earth, what we call the sacred marriage between heaven and, and earth. That's another theme that, that I see in this book. And then, of course, we have the recurring themes of going down to the watering hole to find a wife. People still do this today, right, Travis? Yeah. Uh, not usually in the Latter-day Saint tradition. But but we people do still do that. And then the hospitality is a big theme still. Yeah, that's a big one, right? Yeah. I mean, and I think it's in chapter 20 where it points out, you know, you have to be hospitable. You have to take care of the homeless, of the oppressed, of the poor people, everything else, because you were in Egypt and you were all of these things. Exactly. That and, you know, it's the blessing that is the promised blessing is it's that, okay, you will be fruitful and, and multiply. There's that. And we see that in Exodus. And you'll be blessed. Okay, so there's two things. You'll have all this progeny, right? And then you're going to be blessed. They're going to be blessed. But what is the blessing? And the blessing is that you'll be a blessing to others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what we see. So with those themes in mind, let's now go into the text. But first, a brief overview of this week's reading, the first third of Exodus, right? If we, we have, we've divided it up into three, not, I'm not saying that's the curriculum, but there are three parts to this story. This week in the curriculum, we cover the first part. Let's go through an overview of, just a brief overview of that, and then we'll go through the text and bring out some things. Yeah, so basically what we're going to cover is the people are in Egypt, they're being oppressed, 
you know, Moses is pulled out of the water, adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh, grows up in Egypt, kills a man, flees into the desert. You know, the Old Testament doesn't really spell that out, but the New Testament does that he was, you know, 40 years prince of Egypt, 40 years in the desert before God calls him, and then 40 years wandering in the desert. That's Moses' life, right? But what we're looking at is these first six chapters. They're in Egypt. Uh, Moses flees into the desert, gets married, and then he sees God in the burning bush. He's called. And then he starts going back to Egypt, confronting the Pharaoh. We're not going to get to the plagues, and we're not going to get to that in, in this reading. We're just going to get to where he first starts talking to Pharaoh. And we have the revelation of the name Yahweh to Moses, uh, you know, for the first time, really, right? In the, and it's given to in, Pharaoh, too. In the story here, yeah. So, uh, so that's what we're going to look at today. All right. Well, let's go through then, starting with chapter one, all the way through chapter six. Okay. So we start out, you know, these are the people who come into Egypt. You know, we're just setting the stage here. There's, uh, you know, 70 people. As you pointed out, as we were talking, that's not necessarily the exact number, right? Well, this is counting the sons, right? You count up the sons and only the sons that you count, and now you get 70 people. And this is just to say a good round number of people, right? Yeah. A lot of people, I think, is one way we can read this. And then we get in verse 5, Joseph was already in Egypt. So if, if like me, you lost track of that, here's your reminder. Joseph was already in Egypt. We're picking up where we left off in Genesis 50. Yeah, and, it, and, it's, and it's probably important to note that numbers in the Bible are far more often significant than they are accurate. Right. I was thinking that when you were saying 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. In verse 7, we see that the Israelites are being fruitful. They're being prolific. This word prolific, it, it looks a lot like Ben and I were saying about Rachel and Leah, that animals are having a lot of offspring, right? And, and they're growing extre- exceedingly strong, and the land is filled with them. At some point, we get the hyperbolic mention that there are more of them than there are of Egyptians, which has to be hyperbolic. They're doing what they're supposed to do, right? I mean, the Lord said, you know, be fruitful and multiply and, and replenish the earth, right? Fill up the earth. And that's what they're doing, but it does, but it doesn't go well for them. No, I mean, at, the, at some point, the king of Egypt says, whoa, and this is a new king, right? This isn't the king that invited, uh, that welcomed them in. You have now a new pharaoh. And he says, okay, there's way too many of these people. And he does what? Yeah, he says, let's, let's be shrewd with them. Let's think about this so that they don't multiply. And if there should be a war, they will join our enemies and fight against us and go up from the land. So he sets them, you know, they start, puts them in forced labor to abuse them with their burdens. And they build, build storage cities and so forth. Right. And then the more that they abuse them, you know, in verse 12, uh, so did they multiply and so did they spread. And the Egyptians came to loathe the Israelites. So by verse 17, we get a new solution, which is, okay, let's start killing the males, which in a, in a patrilineal way of thinking is going to just take care of the whole race, right? This is a genocide. And so he has the midwives, uh, well, instructs the midwives, that is, to kill the males, and yet they don't. Travis, in our pre-show discussion, you called this the first instance of civil disobedience, right? Yeah, this is the first time we see this in the Bible, right? Civil disobedience. The midwives are commanded by the Pharaoh, by the king of Egypt, to kill the males. And they don't do it. They refuse to do it. And when Pharaoh asks them why, you know, they say, well, they're, you know, they're just, they're so vigorous, right? The actual word is hayot, which is like they are animals. They're like animals. They just kick these kids out before we can even get there, right? And you think, well, that's so ridiculous. But Pharaoh lets, lets the midwives off. 
Okay, how can he believe that? And you think that's so silly, but isn't that what you do if you are going to destroy another people? If you're going to go to war, if you're going to commit genocide, if you're going to commit horrible atrocities, you have to dehumanize the enemy. You actually have to think of them as not like yourself, as an inhuman. Pharaoh can actually think, yeah, these, these, yeah, they probably are like animals. That's a good point. You know, they're not civilized people like us. They're probably, yeah, okay, I, I can see them just kicking these kids out and not even thinking about it. You know. Yeah, it's a really good point, and it, and it harks back to to verse seven again, where this this word translated prolific, it's this unusual Hebrew term that connotes the proliferation of animals, right? And we can compare that with Genesis nine seven. And and there's an irony too, right? In that Pharaoh is worried about the men so much, because he'll say this later on. He'll say when he when, when you know when you get to the point where he's going to throw them in the river, you know, it's again just throw the boys in the river. I mean, the irony of it is it's the women who are giving him all sorts of trouble, right? Yeah. It's the women who are playing the key role in this whole story. First, uh, you have the midwives who, who disobey the Pharaoh. They're the first heroes of the story. Um, you have all the women that save Moses. First, uh, you know, his mother and then Pharaoh's daughter, his sister Miriam, his wife Zipporah, right? The Exodus Rabbah says it was through righteous women that Israel was redeemed. And, and Pharaoh just doesn't see it. All he's worried about is the men and doesn't realize that the women are the ones that he's really got to worry about. Yeah. And so we don't really know who this Pharaoh is. Thinking of of the historicity of the text, that's something that's kind of inaccessible to us because of the, the literary development of the text, right? But some think that we do see evidence that there were Israelites in Egypt, maybe not necessarily a great exodus that we can find corroborated any other sources, right? I think, you know, we would think, okay, maybe they were uh, embarrassed to admit that all these slaves got away from them, so they didn't write it down. But usually these things get spun, not ignored or hidden. But what are some reasons, Travis? You know, one reason would be, well, the gods did it to us because we weren't righteous or something. Or you had another idea when, when we talked about this pre-show. Yeah, or, or you know, it's you, you didn't fire me, I quit kind of an idea, right? You didn't, you didn't leave yeah. us and, you know, get, escape from us, we kicked you up. So, yeah, I mean, like you're saying, if, if we're looking for, you know, in the Egyptian records, if we're looking for evidence of this huge exodus, like it's described here in the Bible, we just don't find it. If we're willing to say that this could be on a much smaller scale originally, you know, and that the literary tradition has built it up and made it bigger than it was, we can calculate maybe two and a half million people from what the Pentateuch tells us, you know, left Egypt. I mean, that's, that's impossible. There's no way that many people could live out in the desert and so forth, right? Even with man and everything else. So, but if we're willing to scale this down and say it was a lot a smaller thing than we get the impression of, then yeah, there are things that you can say, you can go through the literature and some of these things have just come up recently, you know. Is it because they couldn't live in the desert, Travis? Is that what you said? Because I'm thinking, you know, as long as they have manna from heaven, They'll be fine no matter however many they are and, and water coming out of rocks and whatnot, right? But it's to me, it's the difficulty of actually leaving. Well, you even have the parting of the Red Sea. So everything can be explained in, in that way, in a miraculous way, but it can also be explained in terms of rhetoric, right? Sure. Is that fair to say? Yeah. There have been some really plausible uh, explanations of the Ten Plagues that account for this, you know, the splitting of the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, really and so forth that have been put forth by serious scientists. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's different ways to look at this, but you do have to scale it down. That's the one thing that everybody agrees on. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that strikes me about some of those scientific explanations is they sort of 
deny the point of the text, which is to say that God was showing his power. And as a matter of fact, why have all these plagues? You know, why not just say, okay, just go out and, you know, I'll take care of the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. If somebody wants to chase after you, I'll drown them all. There seems to be a building of attention through the, and and that, not only that, but as this sort of on-ramp to the actual exodus, but also, again, an opportunity for God to show his power and to show who he is and that he's willing to stretch out his hand, as it were, which I didn't realize is actually violent terminology, right? Yeah. Am, Am I reading that right? Yeah, yeah. So we have here, you know, this oppression that they're going through that we can think of in terms of I mentioned this back when Ben and I covered Sarah's oppression of Hagar, or Hajar, right? That Hajar is, a, is an Egyptian, and Sarah is an Israelite, although it's anachronistic to say that in some sense, right? But she, we can still say that. And she's oppressing the Egyptian. And now the tables are turned. And so I think it's important at this point to, to mention that again. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. You know, and going back, you know, something that you say, you know, the scientists are looking at this and kind of diminishing the point of the Bible. That's true. But it's kind of like there's two ways of looking at it. Right. So say you're being chased by a bad guy and you have this feeling run across the road right now. So you run across the road right now. The bad guy follows you and gets hit by a car. One way of looking at that is just, you know, well, the Lord told me to go right now because he knew that car was coming. If you want to take it that the biblical point of view where God causes everything, then now God's causing that car to go down at the, that time at the road and hitting the person and God's behind all of this. I mean, you know, if you go from the other point of view, it's just, well, God knew that car was coming. And if you move right then, you'll get, you know, God knew there was a tsunami or, or the explosion of Thera, you know, uh, Santorini or whatever it is. I mean, there's, you know, don't really need to get into that, but. Sure, sure. You know, it's, I think it bears mentioning on a medium such as, as a podcast that, in antiquity, this is something I've I've said in the past, you know, in past episodes. In antiquity, and and for those who've read, you know, something like Homer's Iliad, for example, whenever a warrior throws a spear, it either hits its mark or doesn't hit its mark, not because of the skill of the warrior, who, by the way, is a great warrior, and we're told that, but because the god who is on his side made him hit his mark, right? He he directed that spear, or didn't hit the mark because there was a stronger God on the other side that prevented it or something like that. And when you watch the movie Troy, that's based on the Iliad, the gods are conspicuously absent, right? There's no gods doing anything, but in antiquity, God is doing everything. There's nothing that's happening that God isn't making happen. So there's that idea. Now, just one more thing here in this chapter that I wanted to bring out is that the midwives, we read in the text that they're Hebrew midwives. I think there's evidence in the original that they may actually be Egyptian. And I think it makes sense too, right? That these are Egyptian midwives to the Hebrews. And this is why the Pharaoh's telling them to do his bidding and expecting that they will do that. And, and they don't. And not only do they not do his bidding and they become the heroines you mentioned, but they are first. They precede both Israel and Egypt in recognizing Israel's national God, Yahweh, as the true God. And so that's a theme that we see in the Bible, too, that the Gentiles will more quickly recognize the true God than God's own people. Do you have anything else from chapter one, Travis? Well, I just want to argue on that. That I mean, I think they're Hebrew. I think they're, okay. uh, you know, Israelites. But 
that's neither here nor there. But yeah, I mean, your your point remains. What does that reading do uh, for us? Well, I mean, I think, sure, it's more striking if you say that they're obeying their master and, you know, their ethnic leader and so forth, too. But, uh, you know, either way, they're putting their lives on the line, disobeying the, the they are. Pharaoh. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, so we end with that chapter. Um, you know, that doesn't work. So Pharaoh says, every boy that's born, you throw him into the Nile. Every girl you let live, right? And now we come to Moses. Yeah. So chapter two starts with uh, a man. This is interesting how it's put, right? And we'll get, come back to this because it's really obscure. A man from the house of Levi went and took a Levite daughter. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And she saw that he was goodly. And she hid him three months. Now I'm using the, I think, what is this? I think this is Robert Alter's translation that I've got here. What's, what does your translation say there about Moses that she saw? I'm looking at the NRSV. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, that fine baby, she saw that he was good. Right? This is the language of Genesis, of he saw that it was good. She hid him three months. Yeah. So she hides him three months, and then when she can't hide him any longer, she takes a wicker basket. But what is the actual word that they use? Christopher, we've talked about, you told me about this, right? I don't remember the word, but it's the same word that's translated ark. Yeah. Yeah, Tiva. It's only found two times. Right. And yeah, the ark and the basket. And it's actually an Egyptian loan word. So I think that brings up an interesting point. My understanding, and I think this is evidence that this word is being used in this way, is that the reason that we see themes echoed in Genesis and Exodus is that they're being written into Genesis with Exodus in mind. In other words, I have the story of Exodus. I'm going to write Genesis now such that, and Genesis is, is a late text, right? As I understand it, it is. And so then I'm writing those same themes into Genesis, not the other way around in the order in which we've read them and in the order in which they're strung together, as it were, in this library that we call the Bible. Any thoughts on that, Travis? You know, the whole Pentateuch is a unit, right? It, it contains early and late material all throughout it. Whether you think the Ark is a reference to this, to the basket, or whether you think the basket alludes back to the Ark, I kind of lean that way, making you think of how Noah, you know, was saved from the waters by this Ark, and now we're supposed to think of the flood and another salvation situation and, and, and so forth. So, I mean, however you want to look at it, it's... And that's the most important point, right, is that here we see God acting in a way that he saves from water, right? Again, a symbol of chaos, as we've covered in the Noah story, and having a new beginning. And so here we have the birth of a hero. And there's other reasons to think of Moses that way, because his story does parallel, what is it, Sargon? Yeah, Sargon right? of Akkad. The story of Sargon? Yeah, in this kind of heroic story where he's born in this way. And then he has this name that's given that, according to as the princess takes him out of the water, he's the one taken out where really it's he's the one who takes out, and, and why not both at the same time, you know? Yeah, I mean, you have the whole story here prefigured, right? Where she says, I call him, you know, from Masha, you know, taking out of the water, but it, like you say, it's, he, he's not the one who's drawn out, he's the one who draws out. But as you say, it's both. I mean, he is drawn out of the water so that then later on, he can draw his people out. You know, this, there's this sort of comparison made in, in the New Testament, too, where Christ is raised up so that he can then raise us up, right? You have exactly. to, you know, you have to have this sort of a, Moses goes down into the Nile so that he can take his people out. He goes into the water so he can take his people out of the water. 
you know, Christ comes down here so that he can take us up to heaven with him. And we see another heroine here, as you mentioned already, who's having more compassion than, than her father, right? The, the Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses grows up, you know, he, she needs a nurse. So she goes to a Hebrew woman who happens to be Moses's mother. And then once she's nursed him, she's adopted into Pharaoh's household. I'm reminded of the Quranic interpretation uh, from the Joseph cycle that, you know, we covered last time, Ben and I covered last time, where when Joseph is taken into the house of Potiphar, he says that he and uh, Zuleicha might adopt him. And so here we have something like that actually happening. Moses is actually adopted into this household. And then he grows up in this way. I told you, pre-show, Travis, that it, it reminded me of the story of Siddhartha. Because it says here in verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, and, and that's in my commentary, right, in this sheltered palace, right, where he doesn't really see what's going on outside, he goes out to his people and saw their forced labor. And so this is like Siddhartha that starts the Buddhist tradition where he grows up in a palace and he goes out and sees the suffering. And at that point, he leaves the palace. What happens with Moses is that he actually sees, and by the way, I don't know how it is that he knows that they're his people. We don't know if he was taught that by his mother, um, but he knows they're his people. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily say that he knew. That's true. Right. It does say that he sees his brother's you know, striking a man of his brothers. I mean, it's kind of implied. I mean, we at least know that right. he's of this people, but it's not clear whether he knows. That's a good point. Yeah. Later on, we'll see that he's seen as an Egyptian when he's in Midian. He looks like an Egyptian. I don't know how he looks like an Egyptian. I was joking with your uh, pre-show that maybe he was wearing eyeliner. Is it his dress? He can't look Egyptian. He's not Egyptian in terms of his physical appearance. So he sees this happening and he looks both ways. You pointed out to me, Travis, that this looks like a premeditated murder. I don't know that it's a pre, and I'm not saying you're saying that because the verb here in the Hebrew tells us that he struck the man, not that he killed him. It does say here that he, in the text that he killed him in the NRSV, but that's because that's what happened. After he struck the man, the man was dead and he did hide him in the sand. Yeah, the, the point is that, you know, it specifically says he turned this way and that. He looked around to see if anybody was going to see him. If anybody's going to catch him, do this. And then he does it, right? And he thought nobody saw him. And, and he thought nobody saw him. He thought nobody knew about this. And this, as we'll see, ruins his life. It destroys his life, this act of violence. And the tragic thing here, too, is he's a prince of Egypt. He didn't need to kill the man to stop him. All he needed to do was tell him stop. But he actually resorts to the most extreme form of violence and kills him and then buries him to hide it. And so he thinks nobody sees him, but then uh, when he sees uh, one of his brothers fighting with one of his brothers... So he goes back the next day. Right. They, they say, what, are you going to kill me like you did the other guy? <laughs> Something like this? Yeah. And he says, oh boy, I thought nobody knew, and it turns out somebody knew. And now Pharaoh knows. Pharaoh finds out about it, and Pharaoh wants to kill him. Yeah. And so he has to, he has to run for it, and he goes to Midian. And we have him arriving in Midian and sitting down by a well. And so we get the story again of going to the well. If you've been following along in Genesis, you know what's going to happen next. He's going to find a wife. And that's exactly what happens. But not before he does as uh, Rebecca did and waters the flocks uh, of the people that he actually saves. There's, that's a really good point too, right? That he acts as a savior here. Yeah. And this is one of the things that we see that the text points out that you know, he's defended the Israelites first, which gets him kicked out into the desert, you know, and then he helps these daughters of, of Jethro, you know, another act of leadership 
of, of saving, you know, of defending, you know, this one actually gets him something, right? He gets married because of this. The first one, the first time he does, the, the Hebrews are, are jerks to him, right? I mean, he comes out the next day to, to see if he can help again. And they say, what are you going to do? You, you, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the theme, too, of Moses saving the Israelites, even though they, they're terrible people. I mean, they're, 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 they're mean, they're rotten, they're, you know, they're nasty. They're like my kids, you know. I mean, he's taking them in the desert. They're taking them in the desert. They're complaining the whole time. It's like when I try to take my kids hiking or camping, right? I mean, it's the exact same thing. And they don't listen to him. And he says later on, he says to God, why would the Pharaoh listen to me? The, the Israelites don't even listen to me. Yeah. My own people don't listen to me. Why would I think Pharaoh would listen to me? Yeah. So they see him, they see him at the well. The people at the well see him and they, he looks like an Egyptian. I don't know how he looks like an Egyptian. I've already mentioned that. Yes, yeah, seven girls see him. That's right. And then he helps them out and then they go home and they tell him their dad and their poor father's like, I've got seven daughters I've got to marry off. Some guy, he looks like Charlton Heston, comes at the whale, chases the bad guys off and they leave him there. How am I ever going to get these girls married? This is ridiculous. You know, come on. Bring him here, right? What the heck are you doing? Go grab him. Bring him home. Let's get this thing going. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. (laughs) We have then that the the people, meanwhile, back in Egypt are really suffering in their slavery and they're groaning. And I don't know that they're groaning to God, but God hears their cry, right? And he remembers his covenant. Now, this doesn't mean that he, he forgets. It means he takes notice, right? He takes notice of them. And he remembers his, his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And so he's going, to, he's going to intervene here. But first, we have Moses and what happens next. First, he's got he's to call Moses, right? Because it's through Moses that he's going to do this work. Yeah, and we have to remember, too. I mean, if we, if we want to take the later tradition that, that Moses was, you know, his life was split up into 40s, right? So he's 40 years an Egyptian. And then he spends the next 40 years as a shepherd. And, and that is the extreme polar opposites of status. This is a, rich, a riches to rag story. Yeah. His whole life has been in preparation of one thing, right? He's in the Pharaoh's court. You know, he's, he's getting all the advantages. He's got, you know, the greatest civilization behind him, every opportunity. And he's being prepared for these positions of power, of influence, of authority, and everything else. And then by this act of violence, that's all thrown away. And now he spends the next 40 years with sheep. I mean, they're not really wandering the desert. They're probably just moving the flocks around a little bit. But it's terrible. And that's when God calls him. Yeah. And, and makes him this, this shepherd. When he thinks his life is over. He's 80 years old now, right? And that's when God calls him. He thinks his life is over. He looks back and he thinks, I have thrown my life away. Uh, you know, I've amounted to nothing, right? Yeah. Yeah, so one of the evidences, perhaps, of sort of this textual hypothesis that, that we've mentioned before and that you brought up again is in the name of Jethro. You, you've named Jethro, but the text hasn't named Jethro yet, right? We have in, in two, uh, verse 218, Ruel, and this is one of many names. We get later on that it's Jethro. His sister, Moses' sister, isn't named here, but is named later, right? You mentioned Miriam's name. It's interesting to note that just like the Pharaoh isn't named, his daughter isn't either. The midwives are named. They're heroines and they're named. I guess we said the, the Pharaoh's daughter's a, a heroine too, but she's not named. Well, I think we get her name later. But, but yeah, and we get the name of you know, Moses' parents too later. That's right. They sh- those names show up later too. I, I had something to say about that, actually. We're going to get their names later. What we got at the beginning of this chapter is that they're Levites. That's the emphasis. Let's not name them. It's, we're not worried about that. What we want to tell you is they're Levites. Right, that's the emphasis. Yeah. 
And so we can find out their names later. That's less important than that they're Levites. So we have then that the king of Egypt dies. And so this sets the stage for Moses' return, right? We have the, the king that welcomed, you know, that had Joseph come in and, and his family was welcomed in. Jacob came down and, and Joseph's brothers. And then we have that king dies and the new king is the one who says, whoa, there's too many Israelites here. And Moses goes away when that king wants to kill him. Now we have a new king. So in Exodus 3, we have Moses and the burning bush, right? Yeah, and that's the main theme here, is, and, and one of the most vivid images, right? Moses was herding the flock, and he drove the flock into the wilderness, and he came to the mountain of God to Horeb. And you pointed out as we talked, you know, that there may be some premeditation here. You know, he, there may be a reason. He's, it may not just be accidental that he's going to this mountain. You know, it could be that the later tradition just knows that now this is the holy mountain. Maybe, yeah. So he seems to go beyond. And, and in fact, I think the text suggests that he goes behind. You know, it seems like he's, he's going beyond or behind. And he's looking for something. And, and regardless, he sees something, right? He sees something, he notices it, and he wants to take a closer look. And what does he see? A burning bush that doesn't burn. We say burn up in English to distinguish, right? Because, you know, when, when I look at how this, is, you know, how this is written in the Hebrew, where it burns, but it doesn't burn, you could you could just sort of picture this this fire on the tree in the tree but not actually consuming the tree right something like this and this idea of fire and and this numinous experience uh, having to do with fire is is typical right it reminds me of uh, Joseph Smith's first vision as as we call it where he describes in some of the some of the descriptions that he gives of that vision the light that's brighter than than noonday and is there something about the leaves being on fire there too well, he does note it, you know, at, at one point that he was surprised the trees weren't burning, right? They were so bright. Exactly, yeah. So that, that looks a lot like this story, too. Yeah. In that way, in that sense. Yeah. And so he's, he gets called out of the bush, and he gets called more than once. This isn't a mirage. Moses, Moses. And then he wants to know God's name. And I'm reminded of Jacob, right, when Jacob wrestles with an angel. And by the way, it says here, too, that it's an angel. Right, and then it's God, and just like in that prior story. And so, one of the, exp- the explanations that that I've heard from uh, an acquaintance of yours, who is uh, Dan McClellan, is that where this text says originally said, he, he posits, McClellan posits that where this text originally said God, someone put Malak, the angel, in front of God, and the way the grammar works is that's all you have to do for it to become an angel of God. You, there's no of. You don't, have, you don't need another word. You just put angel in front of God, and instead of God, you get angel of God. And if this happens, it's because of some kind of theological commitment that you can't see God. It's interesting because actually you still have here that Moses is afraid to look at God. If you're, you can look at an angel, but it was thought that you could not look at God and live. And so why, if this is an angel, why is he afraid to look? And McClellan gives as evidence the idea that anytime you see an angel where it isn't an angel of God, where it looks like someone's put angel in front of God, is again his hypothesis, that the angel acts like an angel. And in these cases, like this case here, he acts like God. And as a matter of fact, God asks him who he is, and he says, as he said to Jacob, I am who I am. But then it's interesting to me because he says, it looks like he's not willing to give his name, and he's doing what he did with Jacob. Jacob wanted to have, in some sense, having a name to give someone some kind of power over something, right? I remember just the other day, someone asked me my name. I was meeting someone, or I asked their name. I got their name, and I didn't give my name. 
and I felt uncomfortable for them. I said, I, I have an advantage over them. I have to give them my name. And I gave them my name. So that's, that's a very real experience of my own in, in this same way, right? So he wants to know his name. Jacob does, and he doesn't get it. And now we have Moses asking the same question. Yeah. And, you know, to expand on that, you know, there really was this idea that getting the name of a god gave you control over him. You know, it's a sort of shamanic idea. But, I mean, it went, it went so far that the, the ancient Romans hid the name of their god so well that they forgot it. They no longer knew. They, they were so concerned that their enemies didn't get the name of their god. So, you know, the idea is that if they knew the name of the god, they could then call the god out of the city and then the city would be undefended. The Romans protected that name so well that they forgot it. Later Romans like Varro and so forth, you know, asked, <laughs> you know, speculating on what is the name of our god? You know, it's, it's been forgotten. So that really was this certain thing, you know, and Moses is so, you know, diplomatic about trying to get the name of God from him. He's, he's, he's not saying, well, well, tell me your name. He says, when I go to the Egyptians and they ask the name of my God, well, what, what should I tell them? That's right. He is really diplomatic. It's not quite like Jacob, is it? And so it's interesting because then after God says, I am who I am, as if he, he's not willing to give his name, then we get in verse 15, God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord is what we read, I think, in King James Version. I have also the Lord here in, in NRSV. The God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now, notice that this Lord is in small caps. This is standing in for the Tetragrammaton, YHWH, which, Travis, you've been pronouncing Yahweh. We don't actually know how this is pronounced, but that's the typical pronunciation. And I think it's where we get Jehovah. And so he's actually giving his name here. And I think it's easy to miss that if you don't know that that's what Lord is doing here. Travis, you and I uh, studied a little biblical Hebrew together with Ed Vermage, who tutored us. And even, you know, Ed being uh, an atheist who loves the Bible as literature, taught us when we read the Tetragrammaton to read Adonai, which is Lord, that the name wasn't actually mentioned. Now, fortunately, they didn't forget it. I was thinking when you were talking about the Romans, I was thinking, would to God that we would keep our codes for our nuclear weapons or keys or whatever we use so safe that, that we couldn't get to them. That would be nice. Yeah. And so he says, this is my name forever. And this is my title for all generations. And then he tells him to go to Pharaoh with the elders of Israel. Later on, he goes to Pharaoh, but not with the elders of Israel. Do you know why, Travis? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't work out. So you get kind of the idea that, you know, his first try, you know, really kind of flubs it, right? I mean, he, he goes, he gets everything kind of backwards. You know, he says, well, let my people go. And he says, no way, I'm going to make it worse for me. He says, well, it's only for three days. I mean, you should have started with the three days at the beginning, right? Uh, before you get uh, Pharaoh all worked up. And he didn't take the elders of Israel. So it, it goes really poorly. So he has to go back, right? Yeah. So the Lord says that he knows that the king of Egypt will not let, this is in verse 19, will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so again, we're going to have to have this mighty hand stretched out. God is going to have to show his power. He's going to have to inflict some kind of punishment or some kind of, I wanted to say evil. Can I say that? He, he's going to be violent. This is, the, this is the God of the Old Testament, as we always see, right? That is, again, as Ben and I have talked about this, the ancient Israelite understanding of God, Yahweh being their warrior God, just like every other nation around them has a warrior god. And it's sort of, you know, when you go into battle, just like I was saying about the Iliad, 
it's, it's really God against God. It doesn't matter what the, the humans are doing. They're sort of puppets and the gods are pulling the strings. And so it's my God is, is going to beat up your God, right? Yahweh is my warrior God. He's going to go into battle with me. You know, you can just see God saying, okay, guys, I'm not your warrior God like your neighbors have. They have sort of the wrong idea, and now so do you, because you think I work like their idea of God. But I'm glad you're talking to me. You know, we're in this relationship. Let's keep this relationship going and until you figure out who I am. And so we get there eventually, right, with the New Testament. And then again, do we? I think Jesus is teaching us who God is. And this is the point of cross vision, right? The idea of a cruciform hermeneutic. And as we came into this year's reading, and even with last year's reading, and I think even the year before that, we're coming to this reading. Everybody has to have a hermeneutic to read a text. And if you don't know your hermeneutic, that doesn't mean you don't have one. That reminds me of in the Islamic tradition, they say that if you don't have a sheikh who is a teacher, right, then uh, shaitan is your sheikh, that Satan is your teacher, right? And so as, as we go into these texts and we read them, we have confessed, right? We've actually told you, the listener, that our hermeneutic is cruciform. It is a nonviolent hermeneutic. And this opens things up to us that we might not be able to see. So this is the lens through which we're looking. And so we are going to see according to our lens. And it presents challenges sometimes. It really does. It presents challenges. And yet, as we sit with the text and as we exercise faith, really, because it is a matter of faith, because there's an activity to this, right? We're acting on this. We get then eventually these openings and we share them with you. Yeah. yeah. Travis, do you, do you have something to say about that? No, I think, I think you put that really well. So the king of Egypt is not going to let them go unless he's compelled. You know, we get in the text that God hardens his heart. Again, we have that God does everything, as we've, as we've said. I don't remember whether Joseph Smith changes the wording of this, you know, to Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But again, if Pharaoh hardens his own heart, in an ancient Near Eastern way of understanding this, God is doing it anyway. And there's actually a point at which you can see, it really looks like Pharaoh has a cho- he has a choice, obviously, right? And by the way, there's an ambiguity in the text, I think, that we could say that it's not even clear to me whether it's not that Pharaoh is driving the people out. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know along with that, there's this idea, too, that the Lord wants, in a way, Pharaoh to resist. Oh, yes. The Lord so he can show his power. Yeah, the Lord doesn't want them to just kind of be able to walk out and nothing happen and, and this sort of thing. This is, you know, God's revelation. This has got to be a big deal. And he's got to really reveal his power, you know, and make an impression both on the Egyptians and, you know, on the Israelites, too. So he wants this to be a conflict that's worth remembering. Right. Right. And given that we don't even have outside of the Bible any corroboration for this Exodus, the point that I think is relevant to us is that we are to take away who God is in that, not in that he can afflict people and punish people with plagues, right? But that he is in a relationship with us and that he is on our side and that he wants us to, wants to lead us out of slavery, whatever that slavery is, as you've pointed out, Travis, there's a personal interpretation possible for all of us, for each of us, right? To lead us out of that slavery, out of bondage, out of Egypt, into a land of milk and honey, as you know, as cliche as that sounds, it reminds me of the image of, of paradise in the Quran, where, of course, if you're a desert people, what does paradise look like, right? You have water flowing, you have green trees, you have date palms, you have dates, right? 
it also reminds me of, of my favorite psalm, the one that says that, you know, again, you have, just as Moses is the shepherd, you have the Lord is my shepherd, and where does he feed me? In green pastures, right? And there's peace in that. There's peace in that for me, as opposed to the hell I may be living in. Yeah, and now milk and honey is, is a cliche, but this is the first time it's mentioned in the Bible, right? That's right. That's a very good point. And it's one of these things where it's hard to have that fresh. It's like the old lady who read Hamlet and said she wasn't impressed. It was just a bunch of quotations strung together, right? <laughs> you know, anybody right. could have done that. So, I mean, it's hard to see this as, with as, you know, as fresh as it, as it would have been, right, when it was originally written. Indeed, a very good point indeed. So uh, the last thing from this chapter that, that I wanted to mention is this idea that, that I hadn't noticed before, Travis, that when they do go, that they're not going to go, as one commentator I read said, empty-handed as Esau did when he left his father-in-law, although I didn't see that because it looked to me like Esau made out like a bandit in, in taking advantage of his father-in-law in some sense and tricking him and trying to get back to him as he saw it. But the point is, the text here tells us in verses, uh, let's see, 22, I guess, in the end, the last verse, that when they do go, that they're not going to go empty-handed, that they're actually going to take the jewelry of silver and of gold and the clothing from the Egyptians and put them on their own sons and daughters. Yeah, and it's almost like, ask your neighbors if you can borrow this sort of stuff, and ask the people, you know, if you've got Egyptians living with you, ask them, and then we're going to grab it and run, you know. And this is one of those things that, you, you know, you can imagine back then, you know, we look at this as a little bit more reprehensible, but then it'd be, you know, where they get in their own back. And that's kind of how it worked out with the sister-wide, you know, narratives in, the, in, in Genesis, too, where every time they leave, you know, this kind of bad situation, they leave, you know, carrying gifts and, and everything else. So, you know, that's, that's kind of a theme there. But this is still preparation here. There's just one other thing, actually, that I, that I overlooked here. In verse 10, you know, that, that when it says send, right? When God is sending Moses, this makes him a prophet. This lets us know of, of his calling, right? He's being sent. He's in, you know, I think of the Arabic term, Rasul, right? This is one of the words for prophet, right? One who is sent. Yeah, we're still in this, we're still in this preparation part. We're still in this where, where the Lord's telling him he's got to go and how to do it and what you're going to say and this sort of thing. But now Moses says, but look, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to me. And they're going to say, the Lord didn't appear to you. I don't have any proof. All right, so the Lord says, well, what's that in your hand? He says, it's a staff. And he says, throw it to the ground. And he flings it to the ground and it becomes a snake. And Moses runs away from it. And the Lord says to Moses, reach out your hand and grab its tail. And when he does, it becomes a staff again. And he says, that's going to be evidence for you. That's, that's your proof too. And it's interesting because the next one is, the Lord said further to him, Bring prey your hand into your bosom, and so he puts his hand into his uh, into his robe, and when he brings it out, it's full of leprosy. Right? I mean, it's withered away; it's white like snow. And then he says, "Now put it back in there," and he does it again. And he says, "If they don't believe that first sign, they'll believe the second sign." And it's so funny because as you read it, it's like Moses saying, "Well, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to believe I can do it." I don't have any show of power. And these are things that the Lord's talking to Moses like he's trying to convince Moses himself. Like he knows really that Moses isn't so worried about them not believing him. He's just trying to get out of this. You know, he doesn't really believe it himself yet, right? Oh, yeah, I think we can clearly see that. So we have again this idea of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. This is where in this chapter where we get in verse 21 that it says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. 
We've covered that already. There's something strange going on, Travis, in verses 24 through 26. Well, you know, let's, first of all, in yeah, verse let, hold on, Chris, but let, let's go back. There's something I wanted to cover here, too. Right. So he says, because this is this is an important part of the story, too. You know, where Moses says, okay, well, you've, okay, you've answered that excuse, you've answered this excuse. But then he says, you know, I am not a good speaker. You know, I'm slow of speech. You know, I'm a terrible speaker. Of course, all these, the only thing he's talked to in 40 years are sheep, right? I mean, he's rusty as can be. He's, he's not prepared for this. He knows he's not prepared for this. He has no confidence in himself. You know, numbers will later say that Moses is the most humble man in the world. But, uh, I mean, he really has no, you know, faith in himself here. And the Lord says, well, who's, who gave man a mouth to begin with? And, I, you know, I'm going to tell you what to say. And, and he says, oh, but please, and I can't do it. And he finally says, is there not Aaron, your, the Levite, your brother? I know that he can speak, and he's going to come out to see you. So, and interestingly, he says, he will be a prophet for you, and you will be a god to him. Right. So I'm God, you're Moses, the prophet. But you're God, and he is Aaron, the prophet, to you. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, you're going to tell him what to say, and he's going to say it. So it's kind of an interesting way to put it there. What Aaron is going to say is what Moses tells him to say, which is what God tells Moses to say, right? That's, that's how this works. Yeah. So if we could, can we go to verse 24 now? In verses 24 through 26, there's something strange going on. I just want to point out for the, for the listener's sake, you know, if in verse 24, when you read, on the way at a place, I'm reading from NRSV, at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. If you don't know who they are, and he, him, are, join the club. And then you have the very strange occurrence of Zipporah taking a flint, cutting off her son's foot, not circumcising, cutting it off, touching Moses' feet with it, which could be a euphemism for touching his, uh, his actual private parts with it, right? And then being called uh, a bridegroom of blood to her, right? It's her to me when, she's, when it says to me, so let him alone. Now, one, one thing that can help elucidate this a little bit, I, I don't want to promise too much, is the idea that the one who's being circumcised is called a bridegroom, that the one performing the, the circumcision in, in some Semite tribes is the father-in-law. And actually, the word for father-in-law just means the one who circumcises. And that's all I've got. Do you have any other insight into this, Travis? There's no doubt this is the most puzzling episode, you know, one of the most puzzling episodes, you know, that we're going to come across. And it's so interesting because it's inserted. It comes out of nowhere. We have, you know, the Lord really reassuring Moses, you know, and everything. I'm going to take care of my people. You're going to help. And, you know, we're going to do this together. And then they're camping and the Lord encounters him and tries to kill him. We don't know who he, who this he is. And like I said, we don't know if it's Moses or his son. You know, Zipporah, you know, takes a, a piece of stone, which is the way the primitive tribes would always do it. Because, you know, it's always, you know, sharp stone can be sharper than a knife. And then, yeah, this is somehow she touches it to his feet. Like you say, you know, the whole, the whole leg is often a euphemism for, you know, the genitals. Right. You know, in, 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 the, in the Genesis stories where we'd see you know, swear by, you know, he'd put his hand under his thigh and make him swear. It was actually, he was grabbing his testicles and making him swear. This was a, exactly you know, a significant thing. Yeah, we did cover that. So the only other thing we can say about verse 25 that I can say is, you know, from a commentary I read that the ritual blood produced by the circumcision does act in this way as a, a protection against the destructive divine power, like the blood of the paschal lamb. 
And that's, I don't know if that really says much, but that's one other thing I can say. Yeah, it's almost like this is a story that was, you know, well enough known that whoever's putting this together has to include it, but they give you as few details as they possibly can, right? Right. This is one of those instances of many where you think, okay, there's something going on here. I don't know what it is, but you can tell that it's just beneath the surface, right? I can almost touch it, but not quite. So, you know, the only other thing here in this chapter that I have, Travis, is that these things that you mentioned that that God is showing Moses, you know, as, look, this is how this is how we can do it, right? They're not things that he ends up doing, right? He doesn't use these signs to convince the Israelites. Well, it does say in, in verse 30 and 31, they go and speak to the the elders and they and they do this and they do the signs before the people's eyes and the people believed and heeded that the Lord had singled out the Israelites and had seen their abuse, right? So this is what he does before the, the elders of Israel. So he does get, get their support. You know, and w- the reason why, you know, we don't know, but he this first time that Moses goes, he flubs it. It doesn't work. They All he does is, is make the king of Egypt angry, you know, in verse 4, where he says, why do you disturb the people from its tasks? Go to your burdens. And then Pharaoh's going to make their burdens harder, right? He says they, they're not going to give the people straw to make the bricks with, right? You mix the mud and the, and the, and the straw together. But they've still got to make the same amount of bricks, but they, they have to get their own straw somehow. So it's just making it harder for him because he's, he's angry now. Yeah, we're back to Daddy, why do you have stripes on your back, right? The story I told. So moving on to chapter five, we have the bricks and the straw story, right? Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. They, they talk to him. This is his response, as you've pointed out. And, you know, the labor becomes even more onerous, right? That, and, and by the way, the people aren't happy with Moses and Aaron. L- look what you did. Why'd you have to say, why'd you have to say, you call this help? With friends yeah. like you, who needs enemies, right? <laughs> this is, and he wants, you know, he wants the, the work to stop, as Pharaoh says, because Pharaoh wants to know, why are you uh, stopping their work? And this actual, the stopping that's, that's mentioned here, the root is the same word where we get the Sabbath. The idea is that Pharaoh does not give you a Sabbath. Moses wants to give them this time off. But it's really about them going and worshiping, I guess, at Mount Horeb, right? Where, where Moses has gone and seen God. So this is the, ver- the first time in chapter 5, where in verse 1, where the name of God is actually mentioned to Pharaoh. I don't know why Pharaoh, that would make any difference to Pharaoh. Who's, because he says, who is this God? It's, it's a lot like when Moses says, who, who am I to say sent you, right? And so he tells him the name, and you know, because Pharaoh's saying, who is this God? Why should I listen to him? So it's sort of an echo of 3.11 and 5.2. Yeah, and Moses was the same way. Right? I mean, Moses, you have to realize, right. Moses doesn't know this God. So when, when God appears, he tells him, I'm, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. I'm the God of three guys. And, and I'm going to help you overcome the gods of Egypt, the most powerful country in the world. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, Moses is like, okay, I mean, this is, this is pre, uh, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have the benefit of living in a post-Kardashian world where you know that just because you're the most popular doesn't mean you're the best, right? So Moses doesn't really know this. He just looks at this and says, well, you've, you've only got three guys kind of supporting you here. And so that's when he, you know, the Lord really has to convince Moses. And it's interesting, too, that God tells Moses, you're going to go and tell, tell Pharaoh, you know, to let my people go. Well, Moses starts out, he says, well, you know, we've, I've, I've come across God. We're, gonna, we're going to, we need to go celebrate him in the wilderness, right? We need to, we need to stop. We need to do a celebration. It's just going to be three days. 
I mean, he's watering it down, right? I mean, he's he's kind of afraid right. of, of really, he's not completely committed, it seems like, you know. So moving into chapter six, we have then that the Lord says to Moses in verse one, then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand, we will let them go. By a mighty hand, he will drive them out of his land. Yep. And so he says he's going to stretch out his arm. There are going to be mighty acts of judgment in verse 6. He says, You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I'm going to do this thing for you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. There's no if-then here. It's just this is the way it is. A lot of times we, we get the impression, we think, you know, we read this, these kind of covenants that God makes with the people in the Old Testament that if we do this, then he'll do that. That's not what he says. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's just how it is. He's just telling you how it is. I will bring you into the land, verse 8, that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. And then we get this, inter- this interruption with this genealogy the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And then back to the narrative again, where Moses and Aaron obey God's commands. Do you have anything to say about the genealogy, uh, Travis? Well, I mean, you know, the interesting thing here, you know, I mean, there's there's other things we could point out, but, uh, you know, we do find out the names of uh, Moses's parents, right? Amran and Yochabed. And uh, and we find out that uh, Amran uh, marries his aunt, that Yochebed is actually his aunt, which is, uh, you know, against the law of Moses. But it's interesting. There's there's something behind this where you know there's some sort of taboo that's violated in the, in the uh, you know the ancestry of, of the you know the Hebrew. We see this also in Jesus's life, where we know that where it's pointed out to Judah, you know, and so forth. So I mean, that that's kind of an interesting thing that they're willing to include yeah. this here, but it kind of maybe indicates why this was glossed over at the beginning. It was just a Levite man and Levite woman. They don't want to, you know, get your mind distracted earlier. So there's a lot of literary devices going on here. I mean, this is not just a dry telling of the story, but they, you know, it's told in, in right. a certain way, right? Yeah, good point. Yeah, so Travis, we're, you know, we're running into the time limit that we're aiming for, but there are a few things that I just want to go back through here a little bit and, and go into a couple of things. You know, back in verse 3, we get the Almighty, the El Shaddai. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, etymologically, it looks like one of the mountain, which is the perfect name for, for a deity who reveals himself on Horeb or Sinai, right? This idea of the, the one of the mountain, El Shaddai. And then in verses 7 and 8, bringing out this theme of the marriage, you know, God wants to know. This is the, the expression of a relationship in terms of a marriage or, or a legal adoption, something like that, matrimony, adoption. And in fact, in verse 8, we get that he wants to bring you. This is like a bride, like bringing a bride into a new home. He's going to bring you into the new home. And so that's where I see that kind of language, you know, pointing towards this kind of marriage relationship, this matrimony or this adoption. Yeah, that's an interesting take on it. You know, and earlier too, the Lord tells Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my people go so that they can serve me, right? Right. We're going to take them out of one sort of servitude and put them into another sort of servitude. But it's a You're going to serve me, yeah. But it's a completely different sort of servitude, right? Like where Jesus says, yeah. you know, take my yoke upon you. 
right? I mean, a yoke is, you know, you know, is a, is a, you know, something to bind you together so that you can work, but it's lighter than, than not having that yoke, right? There's this, yeah. there's this discipline of serving God that is a discipline. It is a struggle and it is something hard. It is something you have to work at, but it makes it easier than not having it. Yeah. You know, it gives you blessings and advantages that you don't get if you don't have that. Travis, that's, you know, that's really all I have for this last chapter, you know, going through the text here. Do you have anything else to add? No, no, I think that's, uh, I think we've talked too much. At least I have. Well, it's been a pleasure for me, Travis, to have you with me in, in this conversation. I, I appreciate you doing this for, for Ben, too, uh, on, on his behalf. I thank you also as he's on vacation. I also would like to thank, as always, our editors for the work that they do behind the scenes to make this podcast possible. We have Kyle Swingle and Tom Bogle, and also thanks to Shiloh Logan and to Lindsay Olin, co-founders of Latter-day Peace Studies, for all the work that they do behind the scenes. Again, Lindsay, the, the heart of Latter-day Peace Studies, and Shiloh, who publishes the podcast. Thank you, uh, the listener, for being with us. Please, if you have any comments for us, uh, there's Latter-day Peace Studies page on Facebook, uh, the podcast. I, what I like about, one of the things I like about YouTube, something missing from podcast apps or platforms is that you can't really leave comments on, on episodes, right? That's something you can do on YouTube. You can comment on an episode. On Facebook, you can comment when that's posted, when Lindsay posts that. But what you can do on the podcast app, something like iTunes, is you can actually comment on the podcast as a whole, and you can rate it, and that helps other people find the podcast and be able to listen to it too. So thanks for considering that. Thanks for listening. And until next time, for Latter-day Peace Studies, I am Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Travis Patton.